From the McKinsey Global Institute, it's Forward Thinking with Michael Chewy and Janet Bush. Janet, we talk with our guests about a lot of really hard problems. We do. I think that's true. So we've got inflation, pandemics, climate change. It's a bit overwhelming, actually. But working at a research institution like MGI, you kind of have to be an optimist to do research on these topics. Yes, I see what you mean. I mean, unless you're a complete nihilist, you have to believe that the research findings you produce will help things to get better, you know, lead to actual human progress. Exactly. And our guest today is co-founder of a new think tank, and they're focused on policies that can help accelerate scientific, technological, and industrial progress. Interesting. So what specific topics do they study? Well, things like how scientific research is funded. How can you encourage funding to flow towards new breakthrough ideas? How can you bring talent to the places where it can be most productive? And what can we learn from the current pandemic so that we're better prepared for the next one? Well, I'd like to be an optimist about those things. So I'm really looking forward to hearing this. Alex Knapp is the co-founder and co-CEO of the Institute for Progress. Alec, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Michael. So I'd love to start with uh, your background. Where'd you grow up? What'd you study? How'd you end up being a co-founder of the Institute for Progress? Happy to have you share some of that background. So I grew up in Arizona, went to public school out there for high school and college, went to the University of Arizona for undergrad. During my entire college experience, I was thinking, you know, I'll go into academia for economics. So I was both a double major in economics and mathematics. But, you know, really the more I learned about the academic experience and life of a researcher, I thought, you know, is that for me? Like, I'm not sure. So kind of to put off that decision post undergraduate experience, I met some friends uh, in college who were doing a startup company in ed tech and they needed someone, they had the engineer and the designer, but they needed someone with a finance accounting, you know, business mindset background to join the team. And I thought, you know what, I'll try this out. It's a, it's a fun thing to do. Um, it was really fun building the, the business, but the entire time I was like, reading economics blogs online, really fascinated with like policy and politics in DC and thinking like, at some point, I got to find a way to get, to get back into economics, maybe academia, maybe otherwise. As the startup was winding down, I, I was looking at master's programs as an alternative to PhDs. And George Mason University out here uh, near DC has a great two-year master's program where it's fully funded. And you also get to be a part-time research assistant at the Mercatus Center, which is a think tank affiliated with GMU. And so I moved out to DC and that was just a great way to get my foot in the door and get under the, you know, the life of a think tanker. And then eventually you know, uh, st- starting and co-founding a think tank of my own with one of my colleagues, Caleb Watney. And so that's how we got to, to where we are today. So what is this think tank? It's a new one. There are ones that have been around for many years. Uh, you've worked at some. And so what, what, what's different? For sure. So I think, yeah, I've, I've been at quite a few um, in my short time in DC. So I moved out here in 2017. And in my five years, I got to work at a variety of institutions, both on the center left and center right, most of which have been around for decades and really got to learn a lot, had great experiences. But one of the things I realized and my co-founder realized was that Washington policymaking and the think tank community needed a burst of new energy and a burst of new institutions. It's really hard to transform an institution that's been around for decades, especially in the think tank space, because at a multi-issue think tank, they've picked a lot of positions on issues and had fights in the 90s and 2000s and bled for certain positions and won some fights, lost some fights. And if you're the new person coming in saying like, I think we should like reverse our position on issue X, like the leadership is not really you know keen to do that. And so Michael Founder and I thought, look, like let's start a new institution with a new set of funders. 
Um, so we only receive funding from individuals and foundations, which is different than a lot of think tanks in DC that receive corporate funding. And we thought, you know, let's hire really well-rounded people who can do research, communications, and direct outreach on Capitol Hill and to various federal government agencies. The traditional think tank model is very siloed, where you have a research team that writes white papers and a comms team that does outreach to journalists and goes and does public communication. And then you have the government affairs team that manages the relationships with policymakers. But in our experience, in modern DC policymaking, the best people, the most effective people at think tanks are people who are integrated across all those areas. We found that it's just a much more effective way of doing things. That's the model we're, we're currently testing out across um, a wider way of science and innovation issues in particular. So our first three we're focusing on are high skilled immigration, biosecurity, and meta science. Like how do we improve science policy? So I'd love to get into those. How did you pick those? And, and what's your point of view overall? Yeah. Our point of view overall is, you know, as the Institute for Progress, we want more progress. And by that, we mean a particular kind that we think we, we have some relevant expertise in scientific, technological, and industrial progress. And really, we want to represent two emerging communities in D.C., Progress Studies, uh, which is a field kind of founded by Tyler Cowen at GMU and Patrick Collison, the co-founder of the company Stripe. And they really said that, like, look, there's fields like economics, sociology, history that study these different topics, but no single field is focused on how we make faster progress. And that really needs to be the focus, needs to be your North Star. And it needs to be more of a practitioner's thing. It needs to be more like medicine instead of biology. Um, It needs to be implemented in the real world. You need new institutions like think tanks, for example, to help you implement these ideas. And so that's the progress part of what we do. And the other community is effective altruism. And these are people who probably defined, it's been a community for about 15 years. The question is, how do we do the most good we can with a given amount of resources, either someone's time or someone's money? And when you apply that to public policy and how do you like figure out what to work on, you really do a framework with three criteria. It's what's tractable, what can you actually make change on if you were to work on it? What is important? So if you were to make that change, would it matter to the world? Like how big of an impact could it have? And is it neglected? How many other people are working on it? And if there's tons of people working on it, then probably your marginal um, addition of your time or money is not that valuable. When you use those three criteria, importantness, neglectedness, and tractability, what we decided was for our early areas, this science policy, immigration, with a focus on high-skilled immigration, and biosecurity were the three areas that we thought we should start with. But we'll expand into other areas over time. And did you quantify all these in order to get to the, the, these three, or how did you think about it? You definitely use like rough rules of thumb and look at some of the empirical evidence. So there's some, there's some, there's some seminal papers in the economics literature, um, one by Michael Clemens at the Center for Global Development. I believe the title of the paper is something like trillion dollar bills on the sidewalk. And he's just trying to estimate the economic impact of open, truly open borders across the global economy. And so obviously this is not like a realistic or near term goal because this is, this is not going to happen given um, how nation states work and their, their political incentives. But it's a useful exercise of thinking like, if we were to dramatically increase labor mobility across countries, so to allow people to move towards economic opportunity, what would the impact be? And he calls it trillion dollar bills on the sidewalk because it would literally have trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars of total economic impact. Well, let's go through some of these topics specifically. Um, why don't we start with meta-science, which is an interesting term. Uh, you've also described mm-hmm. it as science policy. So is this trillions of dollars lying on the sidewalk? 
I think it is. And it's because you have to recognize that the U.S. federal government is the largest funder of R&D in the world, primarily through the NIH and NSF. And so the question is, one, is this appropriate role of government? Should government be, fun, be you know, one of the largest funder of, of basic research in the world? And I think it's a clear market failure where the payoffs for basic science are often decades in the future. And it's very hard to predict ahead of time, like, what will be the commercial application of this particular scientific project be? And so even venture capitalists who have a 10 to 15 year time horizon to wait for payback, like the multi-decade timeline is just too long. And often we've seen hardware and hard tech, it's even riskier to wait, to wait for that payoff. And so you often see venture capitalists focus on software innovation, which is really important, but not the only obviously part, important part of innovation. And so I think one, it's like from a basic, is there a market failure here? Is there a public good that the government could be financing? It's a very strong argument for lots of scientific funding. And the question is, how are you funding that science? What are the structures, incentives, and really like the overall paradigm you're, you're operating for science in? And I think that that's, that's the question we try to focus on the most. That's why we call it meta science and not just science policy. It's the meta science, meaning science of science. How do we apply the scientific method to how we're funding science itself. So that means more experimentation, randomization. We should probably be looking at a more diverse set of institutions and types of researchers we're funding. If you look at trends over time, the US has started to fund older researchers. Funding is increasingly concentrated in a small number of institutions, many of which located in the Northeast of the United States. And these are our elite institutions and they get funding for a good reason. But oftentimes breakthrough research happens by definition from someone having a contrarian opinion or an anti-consensus opinion. And so I worry that we're getting lots of incremental research and there's lots of metrics that show this over time that we're, we're seem to not be getting less breakthrough fundamental research. And I think having a more experimental approach and funding a, a diverse group of researchers could help us break through and get more bang for our buck in, in public money. You gave one of your criteria as tractability. And so... What is it that makes this a tractable problem? Scientific funding is relatively uncontroversial or nonpartisan in nature. So we try to, as an institution, as a think tank, avoid the culture war issues, the most controversial issues, because we think the opportunity in, in modern day politics for progress and traction on issues is in these less heated, more nonpartisan areas. And so it's really kind of an unassailable goal to say that we should, at the very least, given the fixed pot of money we're currently spending, we should spend it better to get more innovation that directly benefits Americans. Like it's very hard to be against that sort of thing. And there's lots of low hanging fruit because we're kind of doing things really poorly now. And so, for example, one intervention that we recommend that we're working on actively is trying to get a pilot program for a scientific lottery. And this idea would be to say, take a small group of failed grant applicants to either NIH or NSF and randomize them and fund a small portion of those grants that were almost accepted but didn't quite make it over the bar. And then compare them to the ones that just made it over the bar and had been accepted through the normal process and see you can measure future citations, you know, future patents that are related to that basic research and see like, okay, did our process actually get us a lot of like funding better research? Or is it kind of a random process in, in, in itself? And primary investigators report spending more than 40% of their time on grant maintenance and other paperwork requirements. And so it's, it's possible that all that paperwork and all that red tape is worth it because it helps sort the, you know, the good ideas worth funding from the bad ideas. But a scientific lottery could 
help us learn more about our scientific funding institutions and realize like if they're not that much better then we need to rethink how we're actually picking these projects and other countries have tried this. New Zealand, for example, implemented their own pilot program, and they found that there's almost no discernible difference between the projects that were funded through the normal process versus projects that were funded through the, the lottery program, which is almost scary of like, if random chance of these like minimum quality projects was just as good as the process you implemented, like you should radically rethink how you're picking things. First of all, that statistic is one of the reasons I didn't end up entering academia. But uh, I'm curious because... You know, I had another guest of our podcast on a completely different topic, our former colleague Byron Geist once said to me, what Silicon Valley calls innovation, a federal funder might call call fraud, waste, and abuse. And so yep. how do you think about assigning funding by lottery in the context of what folks might say, well, are you serious? I mean, how does that work? You hit on a key political constraint that we think about a lot, and I think is a real barrier to some of these things. There are two options, I think, for this like lottery idea that could, could mitigate some concerns. One, you could only put projects that clear some kind of minimum quality thresholds. You're not putting like any person, like they still have to like pass through the first filter. So maybe you only have like 20% of the bureaucracy or 30% of the bureaucracy just to, as a check on like the craziest ideas that could be politically controversial. Um, and then two, there's great research from Pierre Azoulay, who's an economist, uh, who studies the science of science. And he studied HHMI, which is an institution that funds individual scientists, kind of carte blanche. So it identifies like potential superstars and says like, instead of funding your next scientific project, we're going to give you a pot of money to spend however you see fit. It's kind of an unconstrained version of scientific funding. And I think a lottery program or just moving the system towards that could be less controversial because then you're saying like, oh, we just funded this, very you know, well-qualified, prestigious individual. It'd be like an inversion of the MacArthur genius grants, as they called them. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So uh, an- another topic, though, over time, is the amount spent on R&D as a percentage of GDP by the U.S. federal government declining? And does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, so the latest data I've seen, and this is a multi-decade trend, is that the amount of R&D as a share of GDP in the whole economy, both private and public sector, has been roughly steady. But we've shifted from decades ago, it was basically two-thirds public R&D, one-third private R&D. And now it's basically completely inverted towards two-thirds private, one-third public. And so there's obviously, like you're mentioning, there's multiple ways to interpret that. You could say, you know, the government doesn't have the best incentives and like profit motive. And so maybe it's actually better for allocation of scarce resources for the private sector to be the one funding R&D rather than the government. I think that there's, one of my concerns is that on general macroeconomic trends, like I think there's lots of data showing that like we've had less radical innovation, fewer breakthroughs. So the multi-decade trend is not a slam dunk in favor of that model. If anything, it pushes us the other direction of saying like something used to be working better and now it's not. And I think some of the more microeconomic evidence we have shows that, uh, public R&D spending actually often crowds in private investment, doesn't crowd it out. And often I think the way to think about that in a mental model is that government funding often funds earlier stage research like we talked about early, like before. And so if there's now more basic science floating around in academia and elsewhere that is then potentially commercializable, and then you have you know the biotech VC who's scoping academia, figuring out what could turn into a startup or yeah, what could be the next big thing, 
there's more potential fruit to pick in that scenario. And so I think based on the, based on the bulk of the evidence, there's often that they're complementary and not substitutable in that sense. And so we, this has been the trend, and I think we should try to reverse it. How, how does that trend look in other countries? Or what do we have to learn from other countries? So I think around the world, I mean, the great thing about global development and, and a lot of other countries getting richer is that they add a lot of scientists and researchers to the mix. Um, and so there's a very crude way to think about um, the scientific process and research and development in general is that it's like, how many brains can you throw at a problem? <laughs> there's good research from... Um, Nick Bloom and colleagues um, on our, our ideas getting harder to find. In a very high-level metric, they determine, and again, it's like, is the scientific process slowing down? Are ideas getting harder to find? Is that for the average doubling of innovation in a field, it requires 8x the number of researchers in that field. It gets much, much, much harder. And so in the near term, you're really just thinking about, like, how can we maximize the number of smart people we're throwing at problems? Because um, it is getting harder, probably. And so I think about that often in terms of immigration. That's why high-skilled immigration is a particular focus of our institution. It's the U.S. has these amazing research clusters in Silicon Valley, in New York, in our big cities, near our major universities. And yes, other countries are getting richer and they're investing more in science. But really, it's about moving people, to, moving the smartest people to the frontier so they can do the most important work. And so bringing them to the United States is a, a clear winner in that. And there have been some great research on this of math olympiad competitions international math olympiad competitions where they track where do those people go over time and how do their careers evolve and i believe it's they follow those who go into academia and they track whether they're you know in other countries that they move to the united kingdom or the u.s or, or other countries and the stat they found i believe was something like if they move to the U.S., they have four x the number of citations as that they move to the United Kingdom, right? And the U.K. is a rich country; they're, you know, arguably close to the frontier, also on the frontier. But I think that speaks to what U.S. institutions and clusters are able to do with raw human talent and maximizing their impact on the world. And so, other countries are investing at an increasing rate, and that's great. But I think there's weirdly still a strong case for clustering as much of that talent in the United States as possible. Let's come back to, to the talent question in a moment. I did want to, to follow up on one other question around meta-science. You know, even in the economics literature, this idea of the solo paradox, you know, the innovation in the technology and science precedes its eventual impact on the economy, partly because you often have to have complementary management innovations or deployment and scaling is actually really, really hard. Because the other thing we've discovered in our research is you know, the time to between the, the commercial availability of an innovation and its plateau in adoption actually hasn't accelerated that much. It's, you know, one to three <laughs> decades, roughly speaking. And so I'd love to get your reflections on that. Once you get past the, you know, the initial invention, how do, how do we scale that up to, to actually have impact in the economy? That's a critical question. And I agree, There's, it's often this slow kind of grinding process towards adoption and I think of this, you know, maybe just to make this concrete with an example of, I think we're seeing this play out right now with electric vehicles, where the the rate, the market share of new vehicles sold that are electric versus internal combustion engine is rapidly increasing year over year. You know, five years ago in the U.S., it was rounding, uh, rounding to zero on like the share of electric vehicles. And now it's a significant percentage and it's rising every year. And, you know, you got to be cautious about a centralized decision maker in the government trying to predict the future market trend. And so there's obviously 
history is riddled with errors of subsidizing the wrong technology, the wrong standard. But in this case, I think we'd be quite confident that the future of motor vehicles is electric and we need to transition from gas stations to electric vehicle charging stations. And this is a clear situation where there's a network effect where people won't buy EVs until there are a sufficient number of electric vehicle charging stations, but private sector actors won't invest in the charging stations until there are enough EVs. And so it's this two-sided market thing. It's clear what's going on. Yes, it will eventually happen. Tesla's, you know, obviously invested in their own charging network. Other companies will do the same to accelerate this. But I see, I see a clear role for the government. And again, what's the market failure? Um, you're trying to address what's well, climate change. Clearly, electric vehicles are much better than internal combustion engines for the climate. And so I think there is an overriding government interest in subsidizing this and trying to do it in a smart way that builds that network out more quickly than the free market left to its own devices would. And I think you see that in a lot of situations where the government can serve as kind of a convener of like a multi-stakeholder group and saying, look, like we're not going to dictate exactly the technological standard or where this market goes, but we should be communicating and helping the market the disparate players converge on a standard more quickly that they all, that a majority of them agree is probably the best approach just because standards have such huge spillovers and benefits for the entire market. And so I think that's something that can accelerate this like commercialization and adoption phase that you're talking about is the government playing more of a leading role, coordinating those actors. Got it. All right, let's come back to the talent topic and one that you've talked about immigration. You talked about a paper that talked about you know, trillions of dollars sitting on the sidewalk to be picked up through open borders. So what's the mechanism? How is it that people moving uh, results in in higher GDP? So I think it's it's a key story about institutions. And so uh, in that in that study, I think I want to say the example to use, one of the examples he uses is that a Haitian immigrant moving from Haiti to the United States, uh, on average, 8Xs their income. And what you can think about there is like, in that scenario, likely an unskilled laborer, but they're moving into a set of institutions that is just much higher productivity. And this is why we think that producti- focusing on growth and productivity is such a key because you know pairing human capital with physical capital and technology is really what unlocks a lot of this value and delivers concrete benefits for people. And the actual legal immigration process itself is a huge mess and we make it way too difficult. But once the people are here and they're matched with employers and high productivity you know, superstar firms, or they start their own business, we make it relatively easy to start a new business. And we have a great venture capital environment to support that. That's why I think you see the outsized returns to talent, especially upper level talent in the United States having a huge impact. And so what happens though, in this scenario where people move to the highest productivity cities, sometimes, you know, you know, productivity is, is very concentrated geographically. What happens to the places from which these brains are drained? I think that's oh, as a, definitely a, a tough question and an important question. The research we have on this, uh, and so there are certain examples, like in the Philippines, they're known for exporting nurse, nurses and other medical talent abroad. And so they often schools in the Philippines will train nurses and then they go work in foreign countries, upper, upper income countries. And what that research has found is that through the remittances and people who return home after working for years abroad, it's a net benefit to the domestic country. And so if they don't even have the potential to earn that in their home country, but they can send half or more of their income after they've immigrated out of the country, they can send half or more home, that's more investment in their country. That's directly alleviating human suffering in their home country. And oftentimes those immigrants, after having 
worked abroad for years or even in their entire career, they come home and now they're mentoring young people, paying for people's education in their hometown and just trying to build up their own institutions. You know, we've done some uh, MGI research that we've been involved in. Even within a country or within the EU, there are places that feel left behind, that productivity is relatively low. You know, maybe folks have gone to places where that they're there's higher productivity and they've benefited personally. What about those types of communities? I think this is where you need reforms to the kind of laws and institutions in those communities. So you need to think about like, can we create a special economic zone here? Can we, you know, give certain incentives for businesses to move there, make just like a more pro-growth environment? At the end of the day, I think the solution I don't like is the, we should then trap their most talented people there and not let them move to opportunity because there is like a, like, who are we helping here and who are we hurting? And let's return to the international migration of, of, of people as well. You talk about high skill immigration. It sounds like something that other countries other than the United States have been involved in. You know, is that working in other places? And is this basically a global competition for talent? It's 100% a global competition for talent. So the United Kingdom just launched a global talent visa program that really is um, kind of honing in on this high potential um, category of, of immigrant. They're now allowing anyone who's graduated from a world-class university to immediately move to the United, K- to the United Kingdom with a visa. So they have a short list of, of universities that qualify. So if you graduate from the university, you can move to the United Kingdom. And so I think what you're seeing there is post-Brexit, this is one of the actual benefits of that is that they've taken control of the immigration process, have shifted the focus towards high-skilled. And interestingly, there's great data that actually came out that was covered in the Financial Times just in the last few weeks that anti-immigrant sentiment has plummeted in the United Kingdom. And weirdly, the overall number of immigrants pre-Brexit versus post-Brexit is roughly the same. And so those are the kind of reforms we would like to see is a shift towards a more high-skill composition to build public trust to then over time increase the rate of, of immigration. Because the worst is that if you were to increase it in an uncontrolled manner and there's public backlash, and now we get less immigration in the future. So you have to think about like, how do you maximize immigration over the long run, not just today? All right, let's go to another, the third topic that uh, your institute is focused on, uh, which is biosecurity. How did that end up making the top three list? The pandemic uh, really had a way of focusing minds and, and making these kind of abstract risks concrete in a way for a lot of people. And so biosecurity, and we think of that as preventing future pandemics, as well as kind of picking some of the low-hanging fruit in biology. We think, you know, based on talking to experts in the field, we could have had mRNA vaccines a decade or more ago if we'd had both the urgency and the right regulatory environment. Um, if there were like, you know, a government buyer of those vaccines and the FDA aligned regulatory procedures, we could have had them much sooner. And so it took the crisis to kind of pull that innovation from the market. And, you know, why focus on biosecurity now? I think five years ago, if we're looking at that importantness, neglectedness, and tractability framework, you would have thought that it's not very tractable because it's not high salience. Politicians don't like paying for, to mitigate future risks that they're not going to get credit for if they don't happen. But if you say to people, there's a risk of a future pandemic, and it could be 10 times worse than COVID, COVID is still fresh in people's minds of like, yeah, that was pretty bad. And if there's a chance it could be 10 times worse, you probably should spend some amount of money to stop that. 
And so we think that we're in this narrow window where it's worth spending a lot of time as a think tank on biosecurity. So when you talked about tractability, you're talking about political tractability as opposed to necessarily yes. scientific tractability. Yes, yeah, so that's kind of how we think about our role in the ecosystem as a DC-based policy think tank is that we can't have a, as much direct control over where the science is today and how quickly we can like bring it to a place where the science is tractable. It's what is politically tractable in DC under current constraints. And how did this one meet the criteria of being neglected? There's not as many people working on biosecurity as you might hope. You'd think like even post-COVID, this would be a huge issue of importance, but it's actually still quite neglected. I think I used to work on antitrust policy and privacy policy. I now manage our biosecurity team, but we have lots of technical experts who have backgrounds in genetics and public health who lead our technical work. But as, I've, as, I've, as I'm new to this field, I feel like I've already met everyone in DC who works in this area. And it's a surprisingly small number of people. And I think there are a few reasons for that. One, there's still quite a bias in the field towards public health interventions. There's a bias towards seeing negative outcomes from the pandemic as due to disparate socioeconomic backgrounds. So the idea being like, uh, the most disadvantaged groups are the ones most harmed by the pandemic. So to prepare for the next one, public health officials should focus on universal health insurance and reducing the income gaps and the wealth gaps in society. So therefore we're better prepared next time. And those might be laudable goals that we need to work on you know, in parallel, but our takeaway as an organization from the pandemic was that what actually worked in mitigating the harms were the vaccines and the therapeutics and some of the PPE. And so the idea is to beat the next pandemic, which could be much worse than COVID, we should make sure that a lot of our investment and dollars spent is towards developing vaccine candidates and next generation therapeutics, because that's the things that actually worked in this crisis. It's unrealistic to bet on shifting the entire socioeconomic system in the United States. If, that, if that's your plan to beat the next pandemic, I'm very concerned we won't be able to do it. I am curious, though, as you mentioned things like vaccines, as you mentioned things like PPE, if people don't get vaccinated, if people don't wear PPE, you know, that those are challenges. I think it's, a, it's an extremely important question. I think this gets to why we shouldn't be satisfied with only moderately effective PPE or moderately effective vaccines or moderately effective release vaccines and PPE. Because if your intervention relies on massive social adoption, I worry that it's fragile and could fall apart. And what I mean by that is, I recall before Operation Corpse was successful and we actually had, you know, multiple safe and effective vaccines that initially were 90% effective at preventing severe disease. They were thinking like, oh, if it's, we're, our goal is 50% effective. That's uh, before we were even sure we could create a vaccine. Let's go for 50%. And then for the herd immunity modeling, they were saying, well, then we need like 90% uptake plus if it's only 50% effective vaccine to actually end the pandemic and get herd immunity. And, you know, fortunately the vaccines were more effective and we didn't need to rely as much on the herd immunity argument. But I think, you know, going forward, once you realize this is a polarized issue, if, you know, on, and on mask, masking in particular, if the solution requires everyone on the plane and everyone in the room to be masked to protect anyone, it's probably going to fall apart over time. But if the mask is effective, it's, you know, an N99 mask that's comfortable to wear and it's 
protecting me, whether anybody else wears anything or not, or if the vaccine is 98% effective. And if I take it, it doesn't matter if the pathogen is, you know, transmitting throughout the community, I'm protected. I think those solutions are much more tractable and likely to succeed. And then hopefully we just convince people over time. There's a pervert, a beneficial slash perverse dynamic where the worse the future pandemic will be, I think the less polarized the situation will be. So if, if you know, the future pathogen has a much higher fatality rate, then I think we'll see le- much less opposition to vaccines. You know, the, the G and McKinsey Global Institute is global. You know, we have a global listenership. I, I suspect that there are listeners who would hear some of the things you described as being impossible and wondering why that's true in the United States. You described, for instance, anything that requires, you know, wide-scale adoption by the population simply isn't going to work. That I suspect there are places in the world that where people would say that seems odd. <laughs> yeah, especially at East Asia, how a lot of those countries did very well with these kind of non-pharmaceutical interventions, even the pharmaceutical ones that require ma- massive adoption. I think this is a flip side of this is you know, kind of maybe the downside of certain parts of American culture that are beneficial in other ways. We've talked a lot about innovation and startups here today. I think that often requires being a maverick or contrarian or saying like, I'm not going to trust the consensus and I'm going to go my own way and, and take the big risk and might have the big payoff. So in those contexts, that kind of American culture, I think is, is highly, highly beneficial. In the context of public health, it's probably more of a, a net harm. And kind of just have to, I think, a lot of people, a lot of people in DC policy world, try to wish that away or assume that away and say, "We'll just, we'll just change that. We'll change American culture and get people to buy into it." We take more of a realist philosophy, which is like, that's probably how it's going to be for the near future. And so, the policy interventions we adopt should accept that reality and and maximize within it. And so, knowing that we are in an era of hyper polarization and hyper partisanship, and knowing that things like vaccines and masking are probably going to get polarized. What are the interventions we should suggest or recommend given those facts? And so that's kind of our approach to the, to the issue. And your institute is focused on policy solutions and in influencing policy with the analysis that you're doing. We're also studying how corporations can address some of these broad societal issues, you know, particularly here in the 21st century where things have, have been changing. What role do you think corporations can play in addressing some of these issues? I think they can play a huge role. I'll give a couple examples. One, on the public-private partnership level, I think Operation Warp Speed is one of the most successful government programs of the last few decades, and it should be a model for future public-private partnership going forward. And just a key, just a, a quick review summary for your listener. Our, your listeners, like the government spent roughly in, in total $16 billion funding both vaccines and therapeutics. But on the vaccine side, they picked three vaccine platforms, two companies for each, and almost every single vaccine has been successfully through clinical trials and been approved for market. And of course, Moderna and Pfizer being the two largest, most successful examples and ended up vaccinating the population and being released in less than a year. Massive success. But the private companies were a critical part of that. And then a second example would be... um, almost shaming the government into doing what it should be doing already. The example that comes to mind here is Stripe, the payments company, weirdly has a highly effective climate team. And they just announced recently a nearly $1 billion purchase commitment program for direct air carbon capture. 
and this is a climate issue. Should we be doing more investment in carbon capture technology? I think it's this is an obvious case, yes. It's a similar kind of mechanism to what you had in Operation Warp Speed, where you're guaranteeing a market where it's not really economical today in most areas around the world to do carbon capture and the credit system's all broken. But if we could get massive investment now, we would get economies of scale, learning by doing. It's probably going to get cheaper over time. Like we should be investing $100 billion in carbon capture technology along a similar model. And if that's successful and they get some early wins, I think that actually can move the needle and be a good model for, for government investment in the future. You don't mind for a, a minute or two, we might, if, if, if you need to go, we can go. But I'd love to end with a lightning round. Yeah, I have time. We're good. Let's do it. All right, here we go. What's your favorite source of inspiration for problems you work on? I would say this comes back to the effective altruism community that I was talking about earlier. This idea of this emerging group of people worldwide who really like to reflect on working on things that can do the most good for the world, given scarce resources of time and money. And that really inspires me when a legislative fight isn't going well, or it's doubtful we're like going to get the, the change you want to see. I try to always think in like expected value basis of like, you know, maybe there's only a 5% chance we get this new immigration provision in this key bill that actually becomes law. But if it does, these are trillion dollar bills on the sidewalk. Like this is going to have a major impact that like helps people in a concrete way. And so my co-founder and I are both inveterate optimists. What's the issue you'd most like to work on, but fails on the tractability requirement? Most like to work on fails on the tractability requirement. It's funny because I, I, we're going to work on a lot of things. I would say probably I'll, I'll go with tax policy. Tax policy is like hugely controversial. And I think radical reforms towards like a progressive consumption tax could be highly beneficial and create more investment in our economy. But, you know, if you run any kind of public polls, much higher corporate tax rates, much higher taxes on the on high income people, which I think are mostly distortionary and have net negative effects. Those are very popular. And so I think it's not very tractable to endorse what I think is a pro-investment, pro-growth tax code. And so I think it's not tractable at the moment. Um, and we, we don't have no plans in the near future to work on, on tax policy. As an inveterate optimist, what worries you most about progress? It's definitely this low-hanging fruit question. Like I, I referenced earlier, the our ideas getting harder to find. I do have a bit of a strong prior that there's this low-hanging fruit model of, of innovation. The, the two models are basically, are you taking low-hanging fruit and things just naturally get harder because the most obvious, helpful, beneficial ideas are the ones you find first and then it's just more difficult, more difficult, more difficult? Or is it combinatorial? With every innovation you find, now you can mix and rematch old innovations in new ways and so innovation gets easier. And I think my read of the history is that like probably it's mostly a low-hanging fruit story and so why I worry about progress is that even if we were to improve our institutions by 10%, 20%, 30%, that it wouldn't be enough, that the problems just get so much harder over time. There are lots of reasons for optimism, artificial intelligence being one of them, um, but it could just be that the problems get harder and harder. What's one solution from a country or city around the world that would have the most impact if deployed globally? I'll probably have to go with charter cities here. There's special economic zones as like the things that have, have happened most recently and successfully, where I think getting urban clusters the right set of rules and institutions around the world would unlock the most, the most growth. And so 
if you think about it as like importing kind of Western, you know, inclusive institutions around the world, then special economic zones might be the one. For what topic do corporations have the greatest potential to accelerate progress? I would probably say energy policy, I think, or energy, energy as an area. If a student asks you what they should study, what would you suggest? I would suggest, I'm so biased. I, I love economics so much. I would say economics is, it's broadly applicable. It teaches you like how to think. And I think, I think thinking in terms of cost benefit and expected value are helpful in a wide variety of domains. I mean, you don't need to study economics, but like using these mental models, I think is really useful in the private sector, public sector, making good decisions, thinking strategically. And finally, what's one piece of advice you'd give to listeners of this podcast? I would tell everyone to just, I'd recommend the website 80,000 Hours, which is this effective altruism website about thinking about your career. You have roughly 80,000 hours in your career from start to finish as an individual. And you should really just think rigorously about, am I doing the most important thing? That doesn't mean everybody should do the same career, the same job, because people have different talents and interests. But I think that you can make radical improvements within your field about how you're spending your time and how you're developing your own expertise and your own network. And so for me, I had been working in public policy and I just shifted the types of questions I worked on and decided to launch a new institution with a friend. But I would say take bigger risks because if things don't work out, it's often not as big of a failure as you think and you can recover. And think about working on stuff that has impact for the world. Alex Steph, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Michael. Forward Thinking is a production of the McKinsey Global Institute. Find us online at mckinsey.com forward slash MGI or at McKinsey underscore MGI on Twitter. If you like this episode and want to hear more, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Forward Thinking is hosted by Michael Chewy and me, Janet Bush. Our audio engineer is Colin Warren. The opinions expressed by podcast guests are their own and do not reflect the views or opinions of the McKinsey Global Institute. References to specific products, services, or organizations do not constitute any endorsement or recommendation by MGI.